Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. We've come to part six in this seven-part series, and we're starting to see the end in sight. I think probably in about three or four more sessions we'll be able to wind up this entire series. And I want to make... Um, an announcement that I usually make, but with one additional uh, point. All of the outline notes, as well as recordings for all of the previous studies in this and even other series that we've done, are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. Uh, you can scroll through all of the listings there and download any of the things that are of interest. I would recommend strongly downloading the notes at least ahead of time, and if you should miss any of the sessions, you can always go back and listen to the audio recordings. One other thing that I have failed to mention, and for those of you that are a little bit more tech-savvy, um, you can subscribe to our New Life Ministries podcast. And basically what that will do is automatically add each week's new recordings right onto your smartphone. And you'll be able to listen to them on your phone. Um, we can help you with that if you have the phone but you're not quite sure how to do it. But again, it's... Uh, New Life Ministries is the name of the podcast, and you just uh, subscribe to that podcast, and you will get the updated um, recordings as they are made and placed onto the website. Okay, uh, happy to be back with you tonight. I'm not sure I fully understand it, but there's something supernatural that happens when we join together even on the phone and the internet like this. I, I can feel uh, the added anointing when we come together like this, and I, I sense that again tonight. So I believe the Lord is with us, and He is our teacher. The Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us into all truth. Bless the name of the Lord. As I mentioned, we've come to part six. The title, of course, is eternal glory. And because glory is the essence of who God is, it makes sense that it would be eternal. But we've been emphasizing the fact that you and I, as believers in Christ, we have been called to eternal glory. And just as we've received eternal life through our faith in Jesus Christ, part of our inheritance is the eternal glory of God. And that becomes an essential part of our hope as a believer. Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So we've missed the boat if by trusting in Christ we're just looking for a better life in the here and now on planet Earth. There's much, much more on the other side, in eternity, in our heavenly glory. 
And we saw scriptures such as 2 Corinthians 4 and Romans 8, where Paul, who was quite familiar with suffering and affliction, he uses terms like light affliction, just suffering for a moment, compared to that eternal weight of glory. And we are encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus and fix our eyes on things that are not seen, for the things that are visible, they're temporary. But the unseen things of God, the eternal things of God, should be the things that captivate our hearts and minds. And last time we looked at two more aspects. We saw that the rapture, the return of Christ for his bride, is a glorious event. He will come in glory. It's referred to as the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And when he comes, we will appear with him in glory. And finally, and this is where we want to pick up from last time, the church, the bride of Christ, when we are caught up in the air to meet Jesus at the time of his return, there are some important scriptures in the New Testament that talk about what happens to us. We are transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we become glorious. We are glorified in that transformation that takes place at the time of resurrection and or the time of his return. And if you are following in the notes on page 46, Roman numeral 3, is where this section began, the glorified state of believers. And even when Jesus was still here on earth, he had shared and taught enough on this that a few of the disciples wanted to question whether or not they could sit at his right or his left in glory. And we saw that his response to them was, that's not really mine to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. He didn't say there's no such thing. He said those places belong to those for whom the Father has prepared them. And we finished last time looking in Hebrews 2 that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was for the ultimate purpose of bringing many sons to glory. And he's not ashamed to call us his brothers, his sisters, make us a part of his family, because we are partaking in that very glory. All right, let's pick it up now in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And we want to examine verses 40 to 44. 1 Corinthians 15, 40 to 44. And I'll be reading this passage from the New King James. And again, at 
the time of resurrection, Paul writes here about a glorious transformation that takes place in you and in me. And specifically, he's referring to what happens to our bodies. And starting with verse 40, he says, There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Notice that connection. There are different glories. Sun has one glory, moon has another glory, each star has its own glory. One star differs from another star in glory. God in his great wisdom created at least one septillion stars. That's a one with 24 zeros after it, according to the latest um, astronomical research. I'm sure that number will get larger in the next few years as they build bigger and more powerful telescopes, but that's quite a lot of stars. And Paul says every one of them's unique. Every one of them, by the way, has a name, the Bible says. And each one differs from all the other stars in glory. Each one has a unique glory. Then Paul says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Now that's a pretty big leap to go from astronomy to the church, but that's what he just did. What does he mean? The body, he's now talking about our physical, mortal body, the one we're carrying around now. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. So, at the time of resurrection, these corruptible, weak, dishonorable bodies of ours, they've been sown in corruption, buried into the earth, if we've already died before the coming of the Lord, and there the body quickly decays. But Paul says there will be a transformation of that body. It will be raised incorruptible. It will be raised glorious. It will be raised powerful. It will be raised a spiritual body, much like the resurrection body that we see Jesus with after he rose from the dead. He was able to pass through walls. He, of course, was still visible to his disciples and others that saw him. He ate with them on at least one occasion. So there's a mystery 
about just what this spiritual body will be like, but it will be like the spiritual body that Jesus received after his resurrection. It's no longer corruptible. It's no longer weak. It's a powerful spiritual body that will last us for the rest of eternity. Look also in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. You know, we make such a fuss about these bodies. We powder them and oil them and exercise them. And, oh my goodness, the attention these bodies get. It's good for us to remember that they're lowly. They're going to be sown in dishonor, weakness, but raised in glory and power. And the verse we just read, Philippians 3.21, uses a very important word, transform. There will be a supernatural, mysterious, instantaneous transformation of the body of each believer at the time of resurrection. We're not going to sail through the air and be caught up to meet Jesus in the clouds in the bodies that we have. We will have a new, transformed body that can fly through the air and fly all the way up into the new Jerusalem and the kingdom of God. What a great hope God has given us. This, this idea of called to eternal glory. It has many, many facets. This is just one of many. We are called to inherit eternal glory and to be glorified. And lastly, in this section, we want to look at some scriptures, a few of them we've already examined previously, but just to kind of tie all of this together now, our hope as a Christian is to inherit our Father's kingdom and our Father's glory. We turn our attention now back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 17 and 18. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints." Now, because this is a spiritual inheritance, our spiritual eyes must be opened. 
we must be given a spirit of revelation. This, this will not be figured out with the intellect. It has to be revealed to us by the Father. The eyes of the heart have to be enlightened. There, there has to be spiritual vision, spiritual revelation in order to know the hope. Those are important words. To know the hope. Not just intellectually, but in our spirit, in our heart, we know now that we have a hope beyond the grave, beyond this life. It's very real. It is substantial, but you can't see it with the physical eye. It is seen with spiritual eyes by faith. So, as the glorious Father gives us this spirit of wisdom and revelation to know Christ better, the eyes of the heart begin to open up, and we know that we know that we know I have a hope. Well, what is the hope? He's called us to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Every wealthy father leaves an inheritance for his children. Our father is rich. Talks about the riches of his glory, the riches of his glorious inheritance. And for whom is that inheritance? It's for the saints. The saints in Jesus Christ. We will inherit the glorious things of our Father. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, it's not even entered into our hearts or our wildest imaginations the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. But, He has revealed them to us by His Spirit, the Scripture says. So, we must earnestly pray for one another and for the whole church that God would give us revelation of this glorious hope, this glorious inheritance that He has promised to every believer in Christ. Look at the next reference, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, very often, when we talk about calling, we emphasize only what God has called us to do. Oh, he's called you to preach, brother. Or he's called you to the ministry. Well, that's good. That's only part of the whole picture, though. God ultimately is calling us into his kingdom and his glory. To inherit his kingdom, 
and glory to be partakers in that kingdom and eternal glory. Look also in Colossians chapter 1, another one of Paul's prayers for the churches, similar to the one we just read in Ephesians 1. He's praying that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Notice again the words glorious, inheritance, and kingdom. We're called to inherit the kingdom. We're called to inherit glory. He wants us to share in the entire inheritance. And notice again, it mentions the saints. Share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Now one prerequisite that's mentioned here you have to be in the kingdom of light. Can't remain in darkness. You have to allow him to rescue you from the dominion of darkness. Come out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what salvation is all about. He's brought us out of darkness now into the kingdom of light. Or, as it says here, the kingdom of of the Son he loves. Look also in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It's not just salvation from hell. That's good. Praise God for that. But this is salvation with eternal glory. So not only are we saved from our sins, rescued from darkness, transitioned from the wrath of God, from bondage, from being children of wrath, we become children of God, but we're called now into eternal glory. In Revelation chapter 21, where we saw the glorious city of God, the glorious bride of Christ, we return to those scriptures to look at another aspect now. Revelation 21, verses 7 to 11. We've been talking about inheritance. What exactly is it that the believer, the Christian, the bride of Christ, is going to inherit? Well, Revelation 21.7 says, He who overcomes will inherit all this. 
All what? Well, everything he's describing in Revelation 21 and 22. The whole kingdom, the glorious city of God, the new Jerusalem, the river of life, the tree of life, the throne of God, all this he will inherit. What's the prerequisite? He who overcomes. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, that's kind of a partial laundry list of some of the things that these overcomers overcame. They overcame fear and cowardice. They overcame unbelief. They overcame murder, immorality, witchcraft, idolatry, lying. Notice the contrast. You have the overcomers, and then you have those who didn't overcome. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, well, their inheritance is a little different. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So, there's a kingdom there's glorious riches. There are things that we can't even explain or understand now that have been promised to us by our Father as our eternal inheritance. The glorious inheritance. The glorious kingdom. The, the riches of His glory. So many terms are used, but obviously terms won't be enough. We need that revelation that Paul was praying for in Ephesians 1. God, open the eyes of the heart, open the eyes of the understanding that we can begin to see and know the hope to which you have called us, this glorious inheritance in the saints, this salvation with eternal glory that you have secured for us through your death, burial, and resurrection. To try to tie together this entire sixth part, we go back to Jesus' prayer in John 17, 
And this is where we started part six. Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, excuse me, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those. You know, let me pause for a minute. I like it when Jesus tells the Father, I really want this. This is not some mechanical prayer. This is something I really desire, Father. I desire, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. As Christians, we can live in this present fallen world with all of its violence, all of its decadence and wickedness. We can live in this present world filled with hope. It's called the hope of the glory of God. Paul says if you have Christ in you, you are filled with the hope of glory. And what I understand that to mean is we may not be perfect yet, we haven't arrived yet, but from the moment Christ comes to dwell in us, from the moment we are filled with the Holy Spirit, our minds change, our desires change, our perspective on life changes. We begin to de-emphasize the things of this world, even the things of this life, as important as it is. We have to be in the world, but not of it. Yes, we have to work our secular jobs and take care of our homes and our children and our cars and all the other mundane things. But we do all of it reminding ourselves frequently this will all soon pass away. Then what will I have? The world passes away and everything in it. The only thing that remains is those who do the will of the Father. And that glorious, eternal inheritance that he has reserved and kept for us in heaven when we reach there. He's called us to eternal glory, and therefore that's what we should be fixing our minds and our attention on now. As Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 3, if you've been risen with Christ, you're now seated in heavenly places, set your affection on things above, not on the things of this earth. And when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory because he's now become your life. We look at the things that are unfolding in the world today. They're happening very fast. Things are accelerating now in the world. We can see that the coming of the Lord is very near. We can see the secret power of lawlessness 
at work. We can see the spirit of Antichrist at work, just waiting for the Holy Spirit to release him so that the Antichrist can be fully revealed. It won't happen until the church is raptured because the Holy Spirit is restraining him right now. 2 Thessalonians 2 teaches us. Meanwhile, as things are getting darker and more perverse with each passing day, the church is getting brighter, we're becoming more righteous, more holy, we're getting more excited about the coming of the Lord, and as Isaiah said, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Things get worse and worse in the world. We rejoice more and more because we know <clears throat> the hour is very near. Jesus is standing at the door waiting for that signal from the Father to come and gather up his saints, his bride. Lastly, on page 48, just a few concluding thoughts as we draw this part six to a close. And as I mentioned, we have just one more short seventh part in which we're going to look at how do we live for God's glory. It'll be more of a practical study on what are we to do now in light of all that we've learned in the first six parts of this study. <clears throat> the scriptures teach us very clearly that there's this present world and there's the world to come. There's the physical realm and there's the spiritual. There's the temporal and there's the eternal. You see this dichotomy, two different worlds all throughout the scriptures. The present world will pass away. The kingdom of God, which is eternal, will remain forever. All the other kingdoms will be subdued, and ultimately there will be one kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. <clears throat> The problem is, we're still in these physical bodies. We are still prone to natural, carnal desires, affections, ambitions, and attractions, which, by the way, the New Testament urges us to crucify, but sometimes we don't do it so perfectly. We're taught that this present world does offer a certain hope. It offers us the hope of kingdoms, riches, glory, power, but with one caveat. They're all temporal. Temporary kingdoms, temporary riches, temporary glory, temporary power. Contrasted with all that is what we've been speaking about tonight eternal kingdom, eternal riches, eternal glory, and eternal power. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, 
during those 40 days and nights of fasting and solitude, the devil showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Listen carefully to these words. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Notice that. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil said to Jesus, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, when I study the scriptures, I always look at what they say and what they don't say. One thing Jesus did not say, he did not respond and say, oh, come on, Satan, you're just blowing a lot of hot air. You don't have any kingdoms to give. You don't have any glory to give. He did not say that. He knew that what Satan was offering him was something very real. Satan is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The prince of this world, John 14. So he has a certain domain in this fallen world presently. And it's his to give certain parts of that domain to whom he will. Of course, they have to sell their souls. They have to fall down and worship him. And then the kingdoms of this world, the glory of those kingdoms of this world are his to give. Jesus' response was not, oh, there's no such thing. His response was, it is written. Jesus, knowing that there's a higher kingdom and a higher glory, he refused to fall down and worship Satan for some cheap imitation, some temporal, worldly kingdom, power, or glory. But make no mistake, there are kingdoms, there is power, and there is glory in this world. It's not the same as what we've been talking about. 2 Corinthians 4, scriptures we've looked at before, that again show this contrast between the temporal and the eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, that moment may be 60, 70, 80, 90 years or more, but it's a moment when it's compared with eternity. Our light affliction, now if you look at the list of Paul's sufferings, they don't sound very light. He was stoned almost to death, beaten up repeatedly, shipwrecked, floating around in the sea, almost drowning, 
hungry, cold, naked. He went through fierce persecutions and physical sufferings. But he refers to it as light affliction because it's relative to the eternal weight of glory. Let's read it again. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Just as Satan with Jesus in the temptation, <clears throat> he's always trying to get our eyes onto the temporary, onto the kingdoms of this world, onto the riches of this world, onto the glories of this world. He's always trying to get our eyes off of the eternal, back onto the temporary. The Spirit of God is doing just the opposite. He's always redirecting our gaze back toward heaven, back toward the eternal, invisible things of God. And I've quoted this verse before, but I want to read it from the Amplified Version. 1 Corinthians 15 19. If we, that's you and me, if we who are abiding in Christ have hope only in this life. Notice that. Nothing wrong with having hope in this life. When we come to Jesus, He changes our life. He gives us hope even for a better life many times, while we're here on earth. He improves our relationships. He improves our physical health. He improves our job situation. Many, many things improve in this life. And so, yes, there is hope in this life when we come to Christ. But if that's all we have, that's the emphasis Paul is making here. If we, who are abiding in Christ, have hope only in this life, and that is all, then we are of all people most miserable and to be pitied. Actually, Paul's not trying to pronounce a curse, or bring a guilt trip on anyone. He's just stating facts. Christians who do not have a hope beyond this life end up being miserable Christians. They're joyless, they're grumpy, they're always complaining, oh, it's too hot, it's too cold, I don't like this, this doesn't appeal to me. They're never happy, they're never satisfied, because all they're looking for is hope in this life. And if you want to be a joyful, victorious Christian, you have to transition beyond hoping only in this life and start fixing your eyes, fixing your hope on eternity. 
Things may not be that good right now in this life, but hallelujah, when I get on the other side, I'm going to see Jesus, I'm going to be like him, I'm going to rule and reign with him for all eternity. Oh, what glory will be mine when I get to the other side. One of my favorite hymns that I learned 40 plus years ago, I still sing it in the shower, I sing it in my car, it's a part of me now. Oh, I want to see him, look upon his face, there to sing forever. Hallelujah. That's our hope. Again, it may not be all peaches and cream in this life, but it doesn't matter. Soon and very soon, I'll be with Jesus. Soon and very soon, this weak, mortal, corruptible body will be transformed into a powerful, incorruptible, immortal, glorious body that can no longer be put to death, no longer get sick, is no longer subject to all of the forces of nature, as is my present body. God has called us to a glorious inheritance. He's calling us to his kingdom. He's calling us to inherit all this. I would recommend reading Revelation 21 and 22 to find out the details on all this. You know, when a rich father writes a will, the kids would like to know what's in that will. What's father leaving me? Well, Father God has already told us what he's leaving us. He's already spelled out what our inheritance is. It's the glorious inheritance of the riches of his glory. Glorious inheritance. Riches of our Father belong to us. They're reserved for us in heaven. And we must be faithful until the end. Then we will inherit. In closing, God has called us to eternal life. He's called us to eternal glory and eternal inheritance. We must fix our hope on those things that are eternal. And as I mentioned, this concludes part six. We will finish next time with part seven, living for his glory. How do we live for the glory of God? And one scripture we're going to be looking at that I really love, I'll, I'll give it to you now so you can start to meditate on it. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, here's what Paul suggests to each and every believer. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If you eat, eat for the glory of God. If you drink, drink for the glory of God. Whatever you do, drive a car, run a lawnmower, paint your house, babysit, do it all for the glory of God. And what we're going to see 
is God wants to bring us into an attitude where we are so aware of his glory, so aware of his presence, that whatever we do throughout the day, even when we're dreaming at night, it's for his glory. God, I dedicate my life, my breath, all that I am, all that I have, all that I do, I want it to be for your glory. We'll close in prayer tonight, and then begin next time with part seven. If you can, download the notes before next week for part seven, so you already have them in hand. I'll warn you, there are many scriptures that we've listed in the notes for part seven. It would behoove you to already have the notes printed out so you're not thumbing all over the place in your Bibles to try to find them. Okay, let's close in prayer tonight together. Father, you are a glorious God. There's no one like you. You're glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. You're seated on a throne of glory. Your kingdom is a kingdom of glory. And God, you have promised your saints, your children, a glorious inheritance out of the riches of your glory. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and our understanding. Give us a revelation of these things that we're talking about tonight. Give us a vision of the invisible things of God, the riches, the glory of your eternal kingdom, that we might set our affection on things above, not on the things of this earth, that we would not be swayed by the devil, the God of this world, the spirit of the world, to run after the kingdoms of this world, the riches the glory, the power of this world, but rather we would run after you, we would run after your glorious kingdom. Keep us faithful to the very end. Father, I thank you for each and every one that has joined with us tonight. Bless them. And Lord, engraft this word into their hearts that it would become a part of them. And Lord, it would be our meditation day and night. You would renew our minds, and you would be our strength for all of our days. We commit ourselves into your hands. We surrender to your purposes. Work in us, both the will and the do of your good pleasure. Keep us until that day when Jesus returns in glory or until our days here on this earth have come to a close. We give you thanks, praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.